0: is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. It's the early hours of Tuesday morning, and in the face of... Uh, In pending due date for my thesis and plans for a fresh episode out of current readings, I've dredged something else out of the vault, which seemed to me, when I was flicking through it, um, relevant. And the episode's entitled The Future, The Undiscovered Country. We obsess about time. Certainly in the West, we obsess about time. I fill in a timesheet for work. If one takes public transport, then, of course, you're interested in time. When's the bus or the train or whatever form of public transport you take? There are some things that are less so these days. So, for example, with streaming TV, you're no longer worried so much about when something shows on on TV. There are plenty of um, platforms now where that's not an issue. But time is, is a concern. Douglas Adams wrote in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that time is an illusion, lunchtime doubly so. And while the entire series of books, the trilogy in four parts, as he put it, is, um, I guess it's an absurdist type piece, he wrote with some and no small insight, insofar as when you start to look at the psychology of time that it's all based around perception, and so on, it's certainly not a field I'm particularly familiar with, but the idea that um, time is something of an illusion, that it's something that can be warped by uh, our state of consciousness at the time, the situation that you find yourself in. I mean, there's Albert Einstein, for example, who, who cheekily said something along the lines of that uh, his theory of relativity, uh, t- time being relative, boiled down to, Um, sitting in the lap of a beautiful woman, I think it was, for uh, um, an hour, seemed like a minute, and um, I don't remember the other half of it. I don't even want to go there. He he had a bit of a knack, really, a bit of a ladies' man, the old Albert, but you get the idea. He was being somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But science and philosophy do argue about whether or not the time that we perceive is real. And indeed, in a more serious vein, Einstein's uh, special theory of relativity has shown that there's no such thing as universal time. There's no such thing as a universal time clock with which you measure it. A fact that he attempted to use in comforting a friend who was dealing with loss. So Einstein claims that somewhere in space-time, which is this 4D construction of both space and and time together, the three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, a lost loved one is still alive. But this is, of course, kind of pointless in the sense that in the special theory of relativity, you talk about something known as a light cone. Now, the, the fixed thing in special relativity is the speed of light. And so on a, a diagram that represents space-time, there's a cone that goes out from every single moment. And light is the, the, the fastest propagating signal that we can send. And so if you're not inside someone's uh, light cone, then there's no sense of causality or connection. So you could argue that time is, is what gets called block time and that the, the, those that we now perceive as dead are still alive in another part of this space-time but you can't relate to them so it's kind of a pointless type thing. So that's that seems like a huge wonder and a bit of a waffle but, but time is something that um, philosophers and scientists waffle about. Common sense, however, and, and common sense might not be so common and it might not be so sensible but nonetheless, that and our common experience tell us that the future, as a title of a Star Trek movie, is an undiscovered country. That is, it's out there and it's literally, this is a, a, a tautologist statement, and the future is the future, right? And it's not something that you get to until you get to it. You can see as how as soon as you start talking about time, you struggle with your vocabulary. But indeed, humans appear to, humanity faces an uncertain future. And there are these things known as existential threats, and I want to talk more about the whole nature of existential threat, because there's there's a fascinating book on my bookshelf to to get through on this, but things like uh, human beings as the major geological force, the Anthropocene, and I've talked about this at length in various episodes, but the idea that humans can force the Earth system, the climate, the oceans, and so on in a particular direction, that then feedback mechanisms force us further in that direction. That presents an existential threat because it means that we're outside of the conditions in which human civilizations, at least agrarian based ones, have developed. And then there is the the Frankenstein like artificial intelligence and all those kind of visions. We just don't really know, I don't think, where artificial intelligence will take us. Or then you've got um, and I've got here in my notes the day after tomorrow style extraterrestrials, but what I mean is um, Independence Day style extraterrestrials. And there are, there are certainly plenty of scientists like the late Stephen Hawking thought that we should just shut him out in interstellar space and not try and get in touch. The idea of linear time or the linear progression from past through present to future has been attributed to the what gets called the Judeo-Christian tradition. So, if you like the Hebrew Bible through the New Testament into Christian theology. And in this view, time is bookended by creation at one end and the end times or the eschaton, which is just another fancy way of saying end times, at the other. So, creation is a, an act of divine will, and then everything gets wrapped up in certain schemes where space time itself is destroyed. And, I, and I've hinted at this in many times the things that I've written and and spoken about and how that's just a nonsense from a theological point of view. This linear view contrasts with cyclical understandings of time. And look, I don't have a background in this, but in Hinduism, as far as I'm aware, uh, creation moves in cycles from creation to destruction to new creation and on and on for eternity. So time, if you like, is cyclical, it's reset that said, the Western religious tradition is not without its cycles, as we'll we'll see shortly. Nor can we simply map religious ideas of linear time onto the Western idea of progress, as if the former were solely responsible for the latter. So, in the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, uh, the central historical events in the Exodus, um, or the central the central historical event rather is the Exodus, and around this is the concept of a weekly Sabbath rest is tied. Uh, the rhythm of life is not simply for labor, lest we enslave ourselves. Uh, and I should note, I'm, I'm paused and I'm thinking about this. I've spoken a lot about the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is actually grounded in a couple of different ideas in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there's the creation in Genesis 1, but there's also the idea of the, the Exodus. Uh, the Exodus is central uh, to one of uh, Judaism's most sacred days, that is the Passover, and, um, of course, the whole thing about coming out of Egypt was that of economic slavery. And so Sabbath is tied up very much uh, with um, the ceasing of labour, uh, a regular rhythm of life for the ceasing of labour, lest we enslave ourselves. And I think that's what modern capitalism has done. It's enslaved. we willingly enslaved ourselves for the sake of the economy. Uh, but in Exodus 12, we also read about uh, another events and um, uh, commemoration or or something that's regularly celebrated and that's the Passover, to be kept forever. And the key thing about this is that uh, in Exodus 12, uh, I won't dig into it now to find the particular verse, but uh, it's the events to be taught to future generations as God passing over, quote, our homes. And so it's an inclusive. In other words, it's not merely history. But reenacted, relived history. Much uh, the same way, or the same thing, is apparent in the practice of Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Mass, or whatever it is you want to call it, depending upon your tradition. Jesus' idea of do this in remembrance of me, uh, and the idea of remembrance um, in the Hebrew Bible is really not just an abstract uh, concept of remembering, but a really uh, bringing the past into the present. Now, the point of all of this is not a simple uh, theology lesson per se, but it's to show that the Western tradition contains uh, both cyclical and linear concepts of time, and that the former grounds the latter. So, linear time, there's the sense of progression, but there's also a sense of regular return. Of course, that's standard in um, seasons, and there's a... As I've noted in other episodes, a strong connection between agricultural festivals and events in Israel's salvation history. The um, the Western secular tradition of linear time is clear when we hear ideas, um, in kind of popular usage, uh, being derived as old-fashioned or nostalgic. So, in other words, it's inappropriate to live in the past. You must keep up with where we are now, the latest trend, the latest fashion, the latest development. Likewise, we might look critically at the destruction of the cultural evolutions. Sorry, I've written evolutions here. The cultural revolutions in China, with its focus on the linear pursuit of progress and abandoning um, the poverty of the past for the riches of the future. So, and interesting to see in, in the past few decades how China's then turned to the past things like uh, the Shaolin Temple, to draw significance from those uh, events or, or those, those cultural institutions, rather. And yet we, west, we witness sim- similar things in the West. So the Anthropocene demonstrates the destructiveness of the endless quest for innovation and novelty driven by the cult of consumerism, as theologian Michael Northcott has termed it. Not only goods, but also experiences and relationships have been commodified making our society rootless and wandering into an apocalypse of our own making. So if you look at the, the kind of um, post-World War II period and you look at economic measures, you see there are many. growths in GDP and um, international trade and then uses of fossil fuels and various resources. And then you see the carbon commitment impact upon ecosystems. So as the economy has grown uh, in this cult of consumerism, as North describes it, so there are impacts upon uh, the planet. But yeah, there's there's a real sense in which most things are, are made as a commodity nowadays. Pornography, for example, is the commodification of the body. Um, you're not doing something positive unless you're, you know, taking a talent and making money out of it. And there's a real sense in which. And look, I'm a huge fan of social media, but the way in which social media has been turned into commodification of the self. We are a product that we sell. Now, notwithstanding this linear progression, all cultures still have practices bound in the past, whether it's conscious or not. Um, That is, we find ourselves returning to the past and reliving it, even if it's only vicariously to give meaning to the present. I'm going to preface the following comment before I read it is that I am not against the concept of Anzac Day. Uh, so in Australia, however, this particular day has become increasingly tied to a, um, a militaristic um, kind of understanding of what Australian society is about. So Anzac Day, uh, as you, if you're an Australian listener, you'd be well aware that. Uh, Australian-New Zealand forces landed on Anzac Beach. It was a military stuff up on the part of the British. Many uh, Australian-New Zealand soldiers died horrifically and then they, they had to abandon the beach. There's some wonderful examples, obviously, of courage, uh, of those men who gave their lives and those who survived, and a recognition amongst uh, them and the Turkish troops of a common humanity, the sorts of little stories that come out. But it's, it's interesting that it's a, it's a military failure, we use it, I think, to define our future in geopolitics. That Australia punches above its weight militarily, and so we're happy to jump into any military um, escapade that the United States wants to jump into. And it's become very sacred, and I think it should be a day of mourning and a remembrance. And there's been pushes over the years, of course, to include other conflicts. So on Anzac Day, you don't just simply commemorate the Anzacs, but you commemorate the soldiers in World War II and Korea. There was a very hard push um, for returned servicemen from Vietnam who were not recognised for a long period of time. But if you do what I did and posted on social media that maybe we should remember the frontier wars in Australia, which were the first conflicts in this country where British... Um, colonizers arrived and the first peoples, the Aboriginal peoples, defended their territory. and I was attacked for um, I can't remember the exact phrase, but I was detracting from the day, which was set aside from remembrance for the Anzacs, which of course was uh, a false argument given what I just said. So we need to uh, be cautious, we need to be careful when we think about these things and do these things correctly. But the point of all of what I've been saying is that Australia as a a culture does look to the past. So there is a kind of cyclical pattern to our lives every Anzac Day. We remember return service men and women and their sacrifice in the theatre of war and we spin all sorts of things around it other than the remembrance of lives lost in, in conflict. Likewise in the United States, Independence Day is not simple history but a continual restatement of American exceptionalism. And when you see images of US flags draped over crosses, that should worry Christians. So, something to think about, that um, we want to uphold and honour people when we remember the past, but we need to be mindful of the way in which we retell those stories and how they direct our future. So there's a, a cyclical nature that's appropriate, I think, to certain events, but we need to broaden the scope of those. And as I said, the frontier wars are something that we need to go back to, uh, to think very carefully about how our nation, this nation of Australia, which I'm sitting in, um, or now to call Australia, is based. But more upon the orientation of time after the break. Well welcome back to the program and in the last half we got on to talk about Anzac Day but the point was not to get overly political but to think very carefully about the nature of time in the Western tradition and to say that it was both linear in terms of progress something that's particularly uh, capitalism makes a lot of but also cyclical in nature and we think about special events in in the calendar, in the national calendar and so on, and how we derive meaning from the past, and was just being a bit cautious about how you might do that. So time is both linear and cyclical in the West, but is the future a heaven or a hell? This is a question that has occupied both futurists and theologians. The book of Revelation... I wrote a whole book on applying the book of Revelation, All Things New, God's Plans and You're in Our World, but it's frightened many a churchgoer and inspired lukewarm action movies like Arnold Schwarzenegger's End of Days, which I think I saw the end of the last bit. Now, thankfully, Schwarzenegger was encouraged not to blast Satan back to hell, not giving further fuel to the fire of a redemptive violence, which is such a big thing in Hollywood, when you think about it, well, how do you set things right? Well, you kill something, you blow it up. Um, and there are many people that I know and who are pacifists and peace activists and so on who would say that this has done a great deal of harm. However, millennial obsessions in recent years um, Rather, millennial obsession is a relatively recent phenomenon. We tend to think that it's um, something that's always occupied the church. So tales of widespread panic in AD 1000 turn out to be urban legends. Um, Precisely how aware people were of the calendar back then uh, remains to be seen, or its significance. Uh, Modern religious fundamentalism in the United States, for example, has given birth to various millennial cults the Left Behind series and I don't think I've read any of them so that's not a bad thing but um, the Left Behind series perpetuates the myth of the rapture and they've certainly got a, a website and I've dipped into that with all the bits and pieces. Uh, the myth of the rapture rather than a solid resurrection theology which is one of my pet things uh, together with a new heaven and a new earth which is a creation affirming theology you find that in the end of a uh, Revelation. And there is no shortage of broader cultural equivalents. Are you old enough to remember Y2K? Uh, So the whole Y2K bug was that dates of the year were only given two digits. And so in 1999, what happens on December 31st when things clock over? Now, we don't really know how bad that would have been because people threw a lot of resources into that just to make sure that wouldn't trip anything up uh i've written here fears of global pandemics now i can't remember when i wrote this piece originally but it's an ongoing thing and would probably would have been with a bowler in the back of my mind but we're still in the middle of the pandemic when we've right to think carefully about where we're headed with all of that and not to become too blasé as i think we're very quick to do because we really do want to get back on with our lives and um uh, there's been an outbreak here in Victoria, quote-unquote outbreak. There's four cases and it, it may grow larger. Um, and we're certainly not out of the woods globally. And mutually assured destruction. Now, that's something that I grew up with, uh, the concern that nuclear weapons would be used to self-destruct humanity. And it's still an issue of concern. Pakistan and India pointing nuclear weapons at each other uh, the, Soviet, the former Soviet Union, Russia, uh, still having uh, their fair share, and the United States having a heck of a lot, um, and new players trying to enter into that. And then, of course, we have climate change. We are obsessed with our own destruction. It's true, and there's certainly no shortage of um, disaster films about such things. But it's not without good reason. The timing of the doomsday clock is somewhat arbitrary. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's a, a clock and they set it how many minutes to midnight, depending on how close we are to destroying ourselves, the political tensions of the time, and of course now the Anthropocene, climate change and so on. But it's it's been set pretty close to midnight over the past few years um, and closer than it's been since 1953. And that should tell you something about, not just about our existential angst, uh, but also too about the actual threats that humanity has been facing. So you know um, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that we need to be obsessed all the time about this but a sober eye on the future is what's required it's worth to avoid the worst of it and that's there's been a bit of recent uh, obviously um, if you've been paying attention school uh, strike with young people being terribly concerned about their future and they've got good reason to be. Now, some Christians might revel in their climate denial, and you may very well have run into these, as a badge of faith, a badge of honour. But as Clive Hamilton notes in his uh, book Defiant Earth, quote, belonging to a certain cultural or religious group does not exempt one from what is happening on Anthropocene Earth. In other words, you can stick your head in the sand as much as you like, but that doesn't mean that things won't happen to you and certainly to those around you and all those who continue to uh, charge forth with uh, with business as usual or plan new uh, greenhouse uh, fossil fuel powered uh, electricity generation that produces fossil fuels uh, sorry produces greenhouse gases by burning those fossil fuels is doing exactly that in some kind of ideological sand in which they stick their head Of course, while earthly suffering or hell on earth is part of both religious and non-religious reflection, so too is heaven. Heaven is often conceived in non-physical terms, a spiritual home we go to when we die to be with our loved ones. Eternity is seen as timeless and ever-present now um, of no change. However, as Tom Wright notes, um, and I forget the book, where I got this, but it's, it's, it's a common riff in a lot of his writings. Heaven is more of a stop-off before the real deal of heaven come to earth. The end of days, then, is not an end of time, but the beginning of a new time, one that, that began with the resurrection. When Jesus says in John fourteen two quote, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places, the, the word in the Greek for dwelling places is actually for temporary dwellings, like a tent, a um, tent. Actually, I can't remember precisely now if it's a tent or it's a temporary accommodation. I'd have to go back and look at the Greek. Um, So we need to abandon most of our hymnody for its implicit implicit matter-denying Gnosticism, all of this obsession we're going to heaven when we die. Now there are secular models of a disembodied future, they're also common. Uh, One aspect of the idea of singularity, the rise of super-intelligent artificial intelligence is the digital ascension, where human consciousness is uploaded into a computer. A few years ago, Margaret Wertheim wrote a book entitled The Pearly Gates of Cyberspace, and she identified the religious-like attraction of this. The popularity of immersive online video games is another manifestation, as is the popularity of various cyberpunk novels and anime like Ghost in the Shell, which I'm rather fond of where human beings modify themselves um, using technology. Regardless of what vision we have of our future, is it fixed or is it open to influence? Now, theologians come down on both sides. Stuart Kaufman, in his book Reinventing the Sacred, argues for an open and partially unpredictable future. Uh, Kaufman defines emergence as the idea that genuine novelty emerges as a physical system becomes more complex over time, and we certainly see that when it comes to things like evolution. He seems to think that he can borrow religious language and give it a secular spin, um, while avoiding the collapse of meaning into nothingness implicit in what's known as reductionist philosophy, where everything is just simply reduced to the level below it, and so everything's just matter in motion. The fact that he must borrow words like God and sacred should tell us that this move does not work, and it's just a short step to ascribe the creative act of the imminent triune God to the appearance of novelty. And that's really a topic for another time, if you'll pardon the pun. But it's the idea that God is is right getting God's hands dirty. You see that in Genesis 2 and the language that's used there. Now Kaufman considers the process of evolution as a classic example of how the future is emergent and you can't really know what's going to happen based upon the past. And one of the keys to that is rather curious is that the primitive lung with which various organisms breathe air evolved from the swim bladder in ancient fish And the swim bladder is designed to allow the fish to control its depth in a column of water. They're two different organisms, uh, sorry, two different organs in an animal's body. And it's really impossible to know ahead of time how natural selection will take one thing and, and make it into something completely different. Now, Kauffman's argument for emergence, one of his arguments of emergence is that it's partially lawless Firstly, the laws of nature can be understood as the simplest way of describing the world. So you can press down everything that you see into a few key ideas and you re-run those or re-recite those ideas and you can, in theory, predict anything that will happen. The the second idea is that the future is always a much smaller subset of what is possible. The world, as it could become, um, is is much larger than what it actually becomes as time ticks on. And we can never know the full range of ways in which one thing can become another, nor the probability of that occurring. So think about the example that I listed before. So how could this development be conceived of a priori before the fact? When we look at evolution, for example, the unfolding of the diversity in the natural world, it's always a posteriori, or after the fact. So if you combine those two ideas together, the idea that... um, the laws of nature compress uh, what it is that we see and you can never fully state before the fact the full list of things that you need to do to properly um, predict the future, you get a sense that the um, that the future can never be fully described in detail based upon the past and since the future is never truly reducible to the past even if we know it perfectly. Hence the future is part, partially undescribed by our laws which is kind of a curious thought. A really funny example of this is the court case of King, or the trial of King Charles I of England. Now, under the traditional understanding of English law, the King could not be tried by Parliament. And as um, the charge was being read out against King Charles, he started to tap his his cane, and he had the silver tip to his cane. And so he was actually banging the lawyer who was reciting it and telling him to stop and telling him he just wasn't subject to the laws. Eventually, the tip of his cane fell off. And being the king, he demanded that the lawyer pick it up, and the lawyer refused and kept reading the charge. And so eventually, the king had to bow down to pick the tip of his cane off the floor, and this bowing before the parliament was interpreted as bowing down before parliament's authority to try the king. And the whole course of British history was changed. So that's a kind of cultural explosion, if you like. Think of too as another example that's more day-to-day. Think about your smartphone and a number of different things that it replaces in terms of technology. It's, it's a phone. You can video chat with people. You can take photographs with it. You can connect to various people using different technological platforms. It's um, a computer. You can you know, do all sorts of things, you know, calculators and play games and run all sorts of other programs. It allows you to negotiate sexual relationships and allows you to bully and in- intimidate others. So there's technological explosion, but there's also cultural impacts. And then you've got social media and the pressure that it places on people and depression and blah, 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 blah. All, all manner of things, positive and negative, that come out of this simple technology. Let me return to some popular references to tie the program up. In the B- Doctor Who BBC radio play the Ghosts of Endspace, the third doctor, John Pertwee, discusses the impact of time travel, and he says that, the trouble is, you can rarely predict the consequences of your actions. In trying to avert a disaster, you may be the unwitting cause of a far greater one. In other words, as we face an uncertain future where technology is both the cause of our woes and offered as its cure, we should rely upon the precautionary principle. Indeed, the exercise of such precaution when it comes to trying to transcend our finitude or manipulate our environment to our own ends is the message of the first creation account in Genesis 1 and the Elijah cycle, the, the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 17-18. to Worship the Baals to control the climate and then when that leads to God cursing the land with a drought, returning to the Baals to end the drought. Time is not linear in that we can easily predict predict, uh, how what we do will affect the future. Sometimes these effects are highly nonlinear and quickly grow beyond our control. And that, of course, is the punchline of the Anthropocene. Another Doctor Who reference. Uh, As the Doctor says to Joe Grant in the TV episode The Day of the Daleks, quote, every choice we make changes the history of the world. You you watch these kind of uh, Doctor Who and these time travel paradoxes and we say, well, they go back in time to try and change the future. Well, we live in the present and we can change the future. Some Christians want to argue that God is in control. Fair enough. And so we can do nothing. Maybe not so much. To me, this is arguing to abrogate our responsibility to exercise responsible dominion, if you want to put it in those terms, or stewardship, or however you want to think about it to do justice, and to live eschatologically as if Jesus is in charge now, and that's the message of of the book of Revelation, for example, and that what will be should be imagined in how we live now. Saying that climate change is simply the end times is, apart from a simplistic reading of Romans 8, or a delusional reading of Revelation, um, pitting God's will to bring judgment with God's will Uh, that we be obedient to the command to love God and neighbour, loving God and caring for God's creation, loving our neighbour in rescuing them or saving them from the worst impacts of the climate change that we in the rich West have wrought. Instead, what is required now are deliberate choices made together as the Church and as society as a whole, with the hope that collectively we might influence events such that a better future emerges, Hence is the spirit and the hope of the, uh, the climate school climate strike that happened recently, and the actions of Extinction Rebellion, and everybody else who engages in non-violent resistance against the powers to um, save the planet, I guess, to, to put it in those terms, as problematic as that language can be. That Christ will return to bring this to a conclusion that we cannot achieve ourselves, Um, in Christian theology only sharpens, not lessens, this imperative to act now, hopefully, in the present time. So thank you for listening, and once more, God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.